Well, it's not quite that passage that's up there. We got a different one here today. Uh, it's called, uh, well, what is my sermon title? Uh, the Art of Resisting Temptation. Had to think about that for a moment. The Art of Resisting Temptation uh, is the title here today. And the passage we're going to be going over is Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. So that's Luke 4, verses 1 through, t- 1 through 13. And what we're going to be looking at here today in this passage is the temptation of Jesus and what he goes through out in the wilderness and and not just the example that he sets in resisting temptation, but the power that he gives us in our Christian life through that. So Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned to the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when, it, when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, Tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Uh, Well, we are at a point in the life of Jesus here in the the book of Luke where he is starting to begin his ministry uh, there in the Palestinian area. And and as he's starting his ministry, uh, we know that in chapter 3, it started with his baptism. He went to the Jordan, he met with John the Baptist, and he was baptized, and the heavens opened up, and the Father said, this is my son, whom I am well pleased. And so that happens, and Jesus then moves into the wilderness, and he goes on a fast. Now, if you know anything about fasting, you know that fasting can be really difficult because what you're doing in a fast is you're denying your body something so that you can focus, rather than on your physical needs, focus on God himself. And rabbis used to do this all the time before they began ministry. Prophets would do this. And of course, Jesus being a teacher, being a prophet, being the Son of God, before he moves into his ministry, he does the same thing. He goes out in the wilderness, and his focus in this time is to prepare for his ministry by focusing his relationship with God, focusing on his relationship with God, and denying his body those physical desires. And so he doesn't eat for that 40 days. And the scripture says that while he's in the wilderness, the devil is tempting him. And when it comes to the end of that 40 days, he's not had anything to eat, the devil shows up with some temptations. Now, a few things that we need to uh, make clear as we move through this passage. Uh, The first is, this passage is about the devil tempting Jesus. 
There's no looking past it. There's no way that you can explain the devil out of this. In some cases, we sometimes try to do that. Uh, Sometimes we will read a passage, and and it's hard for us to imagine a personal uh, devil, a personal demon, a personal enemy that is attacking us as Christians. But the reality is, for centuries, it has always been believed that there is an enemy against the people of God, and that enemy is Satan. That enemy is the devil. And for some reason, just in the last 200 years, scholars and, and philosophers have tried to explain away the devil, and unfortunately that can sometimes seep into our Christian life where, where we read this passage and maybe we start to explain away that, well, it wasn't really the devil that met with Jesus, it was just Jesus struggling with the desires that he had. That's not true at all. We know that Jesus was sinless. There's no struggle there with inner sin. We know that it was the devil who met with him. And it's very important that we have that understanding. Because if we're going to stay away from sin, if we're going to stay away from the sinful life, we need to understand that there is an enemy out there that doesn't want us to follow God. And he will meet with us to tempt us. He will try to get us to go back to our former way of living. I had a a pastor, when we were down in seminary in Kentucky, he said that he was looking at writing this this scholarship paper uh, on spiritual warfare, but he was afraid that maybe it wouldn't be picked up because so many scholars today don't believe in spiritual warfare. They don't believe in the devil. And he said he was sitting with this stranger who was from, uh, from South Korea, and they were just started talking, well, what do you do? Uh, you know, what, what's your job? And he said, well, I'm a pastor, and I'm studying for my doctor of ministry, and I'm thinking about writing about spiritual warfare, but I don't know if it's going to connect with anybody, so I, I don't think I want to do that. And the South Korean minister said, uh, you need to write about spiritual warfare because the only people that don't believe in the devil are white Western men. Now, I apologize to any white Western men in this room, but the reality is when you look at scholarship throughout the whole world, the issue we run into is in Europe and in America, we tend to have scholars that don't believe in the devil. But if you go to Africa, if you go to Asia, if you go to South America, there is an understanding that the devil is there to tempt you and you have to flee from him. And so we have that in this passage. It's very important that we understand this is the devil meeting with Jesus to tempt him. And there's a pattern. This is the second point I want to make. There's a pattern that you go through here in chapter 4 as to how the enemy tempts Jesus. And the pattern goes that he tries to attack a desire that we might have. He tries to attack in an area of need. He tries to attack in an area of of maybe uh, the path that you want to go down or the struggles that you have. He knows where you're at. He knows where Jesus is at in his ministry, and so he tries to attack to those points. The second is that he always twists the truth. Always. This is, in Scripture, we tend to see it this way. The devil doesn't necessarily come out and just outright lie to us. He takes a little bit of the truth and he twists it in a way to try to deceive us into believing that that is the truth. And we'll go through each, each uh, temptation here in this passage. 
But that's what the devil does. He takes a little bit of the truth and he twists it in a way that we would think it's the truth, but what is a half-truth? It's a whole lie. And so these are lies from the enemy, but when we first hear them, there's something about it that resonates, and we need to be careful with that. The third pattern that we see is the defense that Jesus gives in each of these temptations is the use of Scripture. So where the devil twists the truth to deceive us, the Scripture proclaims the truth to uplift us. Do you see the difference? The, the devil comes with partial truths to lie to us, to get us to fall into sinful behavior, and Jesus uses the Scripture which proclaims God's truth and tells us how to properly live. So if we're going to overcome temptation in our life, we need to understand the Scriptures, and we need to use the Scriptures to understand the truth of God. So the first temptation that we have here from from the devil is a very simple one. He's attacking the physical desires that Jesus is going to be going through, and that is very simply food. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. I, I don't know if you've ever fasted. I'm not good at it. I just, I love to eat. Let me put it that way. I love to eat. Christmas is a very hard time for me because there's food everywhere and I love to eat that food. And so whenever I go through a fast, I I always got to put myself in a position where there's no food around me so that I won't even be tempted to eat it. Well, Jesus is at the end of his fast and so he's able to eat food, but he doesn't have any with him. So there is a physical desire that Jesus has, more likely than not, to eat. Now let's pause right there. That physical desire is not bad. You'd be crazy if you went 40 days without food and didn't have a physical desire for food. So Jesus has a physical desire for food, more likely than not, and when the devil comes, he wants to take advantage of that. And so his first temptation is not to offer food, but it's to let Jesus know, you know, Jesus, you're the Son of God, If you wanted to, you could turn these stones into bread and satisfy that hunger right away. Now, what's the truth that the enemy is twisting? Well, the truth is, Jesus is the Son of God. If Jesus wanted to, he could easily turn the stones into bread. He can make whatever he wants, and he could satisfy his hunger in that way. What's the twisting of the truth? Is that how God uses his authority and his power as God for self-indulgence? No, that's not how God uses his power and glory. God uses his power and glory uh, for for good. He uses it for us. He uses it uh, uh, to lift us up. And furthermore, the truth that he's also twisting in this passage, we see Jesus say say this throughout all of his ministry, He says, I cannot do anything that I do not see my Father doing. And when Jesus says this in his ministry, what he's saying is, I I can't do anything unless God calls me to do it. What I do in life is based on God's calling, not my own desires. And so the real temptation that's happening in in this first one here is misusing Uh, misusing a relationship with God or also not doing what God calls you to do, working outside of God's will. So in this temptation, the enemy is trying to get Jesus to use his power to make bread to satisfy his hunger. But the reality is, he doesn't need that. 
He only needs God. And so he quotes this scripture here from Deuteronomy 8.3 where he says, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. So if you look back on Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, uh, God is proclaiming to Israel everything they need to know before they move into the promised land. And one of the points that God's ma- God makes to his people in that passage is he said, I provided you with manna. I provided you with everything you needed in the wilderness. But understand, you don't live by that bread. You live by me. So God's proclamation to his people is, I will provide for you. You don't need to be worried about starving. You don't need to be worried uh, and have fear in your life. I will give it to you, but you need to understand, God says to his people, that I gave it to you. And so when Jesus is quoting the scripture to the enemy, essentially what he's saying to the enemy is, oh, I I don't need to make the stones bread. God will provide for me. You're not my master, is what Jesus says to the devil. You're not the one that tells me when and when not I can use this, this authority that I have. God gives it to me. So when the enemy is telling Jesus to satisfy his hunger pains, Jesus is reminding the enemy, God will do it. I don't need your help. Well, then we move on to the second temptation. The second temptation, uh, he says to Jesus that uh, I, I will give you all of this domain that's been handed over to me. Just worship me. Now, in this temptation, I feel like it's really on the nose. You can have the whole world. You just have to worship Satan. I don't know about you, but that doesn't really entice me at all. Being a Christian my whole life, if somebody said, I could give you all of the dreams that you've ever had in your life, you just have to worship Satan, it wouldn't even be on my radar. But when, Jesus, when the enemy is saying this to Jesus, what he's attacking or what he's trying to attack with Jesus is, is the understanding that the enemy roams throughout the earth. The enemy uh, has authority over the earth. The enemy, as, as uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, the enemy is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The world, Satan is in the world. That's the reality. C.S. Lewis once described it as we Christians are an enemy-occupied territory. This world is God's. He created it, but the enemy is roaming around, and, and he, he is the one that's trying to get people to sin. And so what he's saying to Jesus is, if you worship me, I'll leave the world alone, and you can have it all. If you worship me and you give me that authority, I'll let you have the whole world. Now, what's the real temptation here? Well, Jesus' goal when he comes to earth is that he would save the world from the enemy. He would save the world from sinfulness. He would die on the cross and he would be resurrected. And this death and resurrection would give us the power over sin and the power over the enemy. So what's Satan's bargain here? Satan's bargain is you don't need to go through any of that. If you just worship me, I'll let you have everybody. Now, the truth is, the world is the enemies. He's in the world. He's roaming throughout the world. But what's the twist in the truth? It's not his. This world does not belong to the enemy. It still belongs to God. He's just taken control. He's just been the one, uh, 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 he's just been the one 
causing the evil. He's been the one uh, tempting people. He's been the one hurting people. And so when he gives this offer, it's, it's really a false offer. He has no authority to give up the lives of people. That's for God. And so when Jesus responds to this, he responds with a passage again from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. And, and his response is, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Well, chapter 6 of Deuteronomy is all about God reminding his people that he is the one that rescued them from Egypt. Do you remember that? Uh, Israel was slaves in Egypt. They had no home. They were being killed off. They were serving their Egyptian masters, and it was God who brought them out of Egypt and was bringing them into a promised land. And so in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, God is telling his people, I'm the one that rescued you. No one else rescued you. No gods, no idols, not even yourself. God is letting his people know that he is the one that brought them out of Egypt. Therefore, he deserves all the glory and honor. He is the one that deserves worship. Jesus' response to the enemy in, in this temptation is that, is that uh, excuse me, is that, um, is that the enemy does not have that authority over his life. He cannot give that up in order to free the people because the people belong to God. Uh, temptation number three. This one's a little different. Uh, this one's a little different because it's not, the, the enemy is not attacking necessarily a desire, but he's attacking a fear that we sometimes run into. And that is the fear that God has left us. Um, John Wesley makes this point in one of his sermons. He says that temptation always has the component that God has abandoned you. He points out that whenever the enemy tempts you, part of the temptation is not just twisting the truth, but it's also trying to convince you that God has stopped looking out for you and that you need to live life on your own. And the enemy really rushes into this in the third temptation because what he does is he brings Jesus to a high cliff and he quotes scripture to him. Again, the twisting of, of, uh, of truth. And he says to Jesus, if you were to throw yourself off of this cliff, the scriptures have proclaimed that God will rescue you. If you believe that, you should jump. Now, what's the problem with this temptation? This problem assumes that Jesus is struggling with his relationship with God and that he needs to test God, right? How many of us have been in those situations where we are somewhat afraid that, that maybe we haven't heard the voice of God in a while? Maybe we're afraid that God has abandoned us. Oftentimes, how the enemy will tempt us in those situations is to try to put God to the test, or he tries to get us to just flee from him. And so in this passage, what the enemy is doing is he's trying to get Jesus to believe that God has abandoned him and he needs to put God to the test for God to prove his faithfulness to Jesus. That's not our position in life. We don't need to do that. Uh, and Jesus quotes scripture saying so. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, this is the same passage where God is reminding his people, I've brought you out of Egypt. 
I rescued you from the Egyptians. I split the Red Sea. I've given you the law on Mount Sinai. I kept you alive in the wilderness. Do you think I'd bring you this far just to abandon you? And what he says to the Israelites in this passage is, don't put me to the test. Don't don't try to abandon the faith by assuming that I've already abandoned you. I'm not going to leave you. And so when Satan brings this to Jesus and says, hey, have you checked on your relationship with God lately? Maybe he's left. Maybe while you were fasting in the desert, he stopped listening to you. Uh, If he really was looking out for you, God would save you if you jumped off of this cliff. How often do we get that in our minds? How often do we get in our minds, well, if God were really with me, I wouldn't be going through this in my life. If God were really with me, he would have answered this prayer that I've been asking for. That's the enemy. That's the enemy trying to get you to question your relationship with God in order to fall back into sin. And of course, Jesus' response to Scripture is, you're not in charge. God is in charge. And God is a faithful God. So as we go through this passage and we see these kinds of temptations, we do need to understand that we're going to go through those in our Christian life. There is no height that we will get to in our spiritual life where the enemy will leave us alone. In fact, I've heard from many Christians that have been Christians their whole life, it seems that uh, every time they try to get closer to God, the enemy is there ready to attack. And they're ready for that attack and they're ready to stay in their relationship with God. The enemy will always attack. And it says at the end of the scripture here, um, when Jesus, uh, sorry, uh, verse 13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. So the reality is when the enemy tempts us, if we say no to that temptation, he will flee from us, but not forever. He will come back. Uh, in the book, The Devil at Noonday by Baxi Dunham, uh, he's an evangelist, uh, was a major evangelist back in the 90s. But he wrote this book, and one of the points he makes about that passage that the devil waited for an opportune time to return is the devil will come back. We say no to him in these temptations, and he flees from us, but he will return to try to get us to sin again. And the reality is, God does not abandon us in any of these moments. He is always there for us, and we need to be ready for his return. Finally, what I want to close with is, I've already mentioned that, uh, that in our Christian life, there's no spiritual height that we can go to uh, where, where the enemy is not going to tempt us. I want to also speak to this point. One of the issues uh, that we sometimes will deal with in our Christian life is we see the life of Jesus and we see God himself. We see the Son of God. And we see him perform miracles. We see his sinless life. And sometimes we can look at that and we can say, well, I can never be like that. And then we can look at this passage of temptation and then start to think to ourselves, well, Jesus was able to say no to temptation because he was the Son of God. I'm not the Son of God, so I can't say no to temptation. You know what that is? That's the enemy twisting the truth. The reality is Jesus is with us. We just talked about this in the communion time. 
Jesus is with us in our Christian life, and the power that he had in saying no to temptation has been given to us. At the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew 28, he gives the Great Commission, Jesus does, and one of the points he makes in the Great Commission is, I am with you always, even to the end of the ages. And what Jesus means by that is he goes with us wherever we're at in our Christian life so that when the enemy comes and attacks, when the enemy tries to get us to uh, fulfill our physical desires or he tries to, uh, to get us to follow him or he tries to get us to abandon our relationship with God because uh, he's trying to convince us that God has been unfaithful to us, the reality is Jesus is still with us and he gives us the power to say no to that temptation. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this power that you give us to say no to temptation. I, I thank you for the presence that you have in our Christian lives as we live each day in you. And I thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness that you have in our lives, the faithfulness that you will never leave us or abandon us, and that you're always faithful. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you for the Christian life that you have given us. Amen.